Hello and welcome to another episode of Words of Colours in Conversation podcast. I'm your host Heather Marks and today I'll be speaking to Matthew Zia, one of the busiest and most exciting directors in the UK, about his latest touring production One Night in Miami and his creative practice as a director. Some of you might know Matthew Zia as acclaimed DJ Excalibur and for those of you who don't know who he is, he's also the artistic director of the Actors Touring Company, a founding member of Act for Change, a trustee of Artistic Directors of the Future and of Cardboard Citizens and has served on the boards of Rich Mix, Creative Futures and Theatre Royal Stratford East. Today's episode was recorded in Bristol Old Vic, where Matthew was currently directing One Night in Miami. He was able to squeeze me into his busy schedule, and after our interview, he went off to give notes to the cast. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Matthew Zia. Congratulations on One Night in Miami. I just saw it at Bristol Old Vic, the building in which we are now in. And it was really good. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. And for those of you who don't know what One Night in Miami is about, it's a play by Kemp Powers that speculates what happened on the night Cassius Clay, before he became Muhammad Ali, became the heavyweight champion of the world and celebrated with three of his closest friends, the activist Malcolm X, American footballer icon Jim Brown, and soul star Sam Cooke in a downtown Miami motel room. So it's showing at Bristol Old Vic, and then it moves to home in Manchester. Yeah, that's right. And as I said, One Night in Miami is a fantastic production, made all the more better because Matt Henry, who plays Sam Cooke, sang to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, what drew you to the play? What drew you to direct this play? And how did you feel the first time you saw it? And like, have you learned anything from Power's play as well? Yes. Let's start with that. Uh, what drew me to it? Uh, Adam Penford said, would you like to direct One Night in Miami? And I said, uh, I think so. Let me have a read of it. And I had a read of it. Um, I think I'm kind of obsessed with race, uh, mainly because I don't really believe in it. And I think it's this hugely divisive social construct that is incredibly unhelpful. So I spend lots of my time investigating it through art and other people's plays. Um, I've always been fascinated with the civil rights movement with that era in America, the music that came out of it, the politics that were around, the resistance, the kind of the sexual liberation, all of those things that were happening in the 60s and 70s in America, uh, and therefore because of uh, kind of cultural colonialism everywhere else as well, or certainly in, in the Western uh, world. Um, so yeah, and I, I guess I was just intrigued, like I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge boxing fan, but if I'm ever going to watch boxing, it's normally going to be a Muhammad Ali fight. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, I am a big Sam Cooke fan, and uh, I knew very little about Jim Brown, and of course, fascinated by, by Malcolm X, but I found him slightly, um, what's the word, kind of cryptic, I guess. Mm. Uh, didn't quite understand him in the way I think I understood Martin Luther King. So then to hear that these four men are in a room on one night, you just kind of go, yeah, okay, we've got to. Oh, and they're singing in it. Brilliant. Super. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it was like how, how to create a, a galvanizing evening in the theatre around these themes that those guys are talking about. And then, of course, like, why make it now? I think it, the simplest shortcut to why this place should be put on now is Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and Black Lives still matter. And I wish we didn't have to keep reminding people of that. I wish it was just common knowledge uh, and common sense that, that, yes. that that's the case. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a piece that, that speaks to that. Cool. And so do you feel like Kemp Powers, the way he's portrayed these men and the way that you've drawn these men out of the cast is there anything that's kind of been thrown 
into new light for you about these four men or about like that time? Uh, I think, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see people vulnerable. Uh, we see them as, as iconic and therefore these are movable figures, strong, powerful black men, but actually to see them shaken and unnerved and doubtful and questioning makes them really human. Um, and I think that's what I've learned, you know, uh, without giving away too many spoilers, yeah. the stage direction that says uh, Jim lifts Malcolm off his feet like a small boy and carries him across <laughs> the room. I don't think that sort of thing would ever have happened, but it's kind of fun to really, mm. to really imagine them as, as, as men. And that's that line that Jim says, you know, when nobody's weapons, Malcolm yes. and the family. I wrote that line down yesterday. It really, like, it really stood out and hit me. Yeah. Yes. Well, Malcolm's trying to win a war. Mm. Uh, and he thinks, and I love that actually, he doesn't change his attack. Uh, he just goes, you are all my bright, shining future. Mm. Now you could go, you are all my bright, shining weapons. And it remains the same, but he, just, he has a change of tact. Because he realises, I guess, that the kind of slightly belligerent way of trying to get people to change isn't working. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, there were lots of ideas that I kind of entertained before, but I love the, the argument about economic freedom. If you really want black yeah. people to be free, truly free, then they must have economic freedom and not be dependent on, on the white dollar, as it were, yeah. um, and to own wealth within communities. So I, I love, the way Kemp describes it, it's like it's all of his dorm room conversations okay. combined with what was going on in the 60s. In one room. Yeah, yeah. And you really got that from Sam Cooke. That's very, you could see definitely like Sam Cooke and Malcolm X kind of these on opposite sides of this argument, like what really is the best way to freedom, to win this war. Yeah. And, you know, you see Sam Cooke very much like as a performer, as the businessman. And then you have Malcolm X, who's like the spokesperson. Yeah. He's like the rallying cry. And it's really interesting to see um, them like clashing but also seeing what they're learning from each other in this one room. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was really great about the play. Um, and I wanted to move on to now the fact about its regionality and actually your work as a regional director. Mm -hmm. So One Night in Miami is started in Nottingham. Yeah. It's come here to Bristol and then it's going to Manchester. And you're also the artistic director of Actors Touring Company. Yeah. How do you, what is your approach to working regionally and how does that, does that change to how the way you work in London? Slightly, but not really. Uh, so I grew up at Theatre Royal Stratford East, uh, where Joan Littlewood was brilliant, radicalising British theatre. I wasn't there at that point. Uh, but I kind of feel like I had a very early blood transfusion full of her DNA as I entered that, that space at the age of 11. Uh, and what her, I guess her principles and her kind of raison d'etre, her thinking about theatre as raison d'etre, is that it is for audiences. It shouldn't be indulgent art where, you know, the people on stage are having more fun than the people in the auditorium. So I'm obsessed with who's sitting in front of the piece of work, ultimately. Uh, and that is, to be slightly reductive, all I care about. Like, who receives it? What do they do with it? What do they put in their takeaway boxes at the end of it? And, and where does that go? Mm -hmm. What does it do for them? Um, do we help them make meaningful conclusions about anything in their life mm -hmm. and and even the term audience I'm, I'm I struggle with because an audience only exists for the period of the play it's really a collection of individuals and they're each going to have a different relationship with the piece um, so I think then I went once I left London I went to do the regional theatre young director scheme at Liverpool and if anything that just kind of allowed me to double down on, on that principle 
and then going to Manchester, and again, you're then serving a slightly wider congregation, shifting demographics, but again, now you've got a 750-seat auditorium. Who's going to sit in that space every night mm. over five weeks? What work appeals to them? Um, so, yeah, I think I, I learned how to try and make work that serves a broad church mm-hmm. and allows everyone in. Uh, I hate work that is intellectually, physically uh, inaccessible. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, like some of my worst nights in the theatre is when I felt stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel that it is the, whoever's making the piece of work, it's their job to take us along and allow us to be a part of it and mm-hmm. to go away and, and make decisions. Um, so that's a really long way of saying uh, I don't think I treat audiences differently because they are key and they are why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, saying that, <laughs> I did insert an interval in this play and that's become a, a bone of contention for London theatre critics who have seen it as a 90 minute long experience, know that dramatically it doesn't need any intervention. Uh, but I think in, in towns where people go to the theatre less and in cities where people go to the theatre less, there is an expectation that a theatre experience comes in two halves mm-hmm. and has ice cream in the middle. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to give that. Uh, and we observed a couple of previews where people uh, got up around the one hour, 15, one hour, 10 minute and, and went to the toilet. And we right. wanted to well, that's around there is where okay. the interview should be. Okay. Then yeah, you get this concert. The, the halves are, like the first half is much more weighted than the second half. Yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, I guess in length, and then in terms of actual gravitas, it feels like the second half is where it gets heavy. Mm. The first bit is a bit more frivolous and playful. Definitely, yeah. yeah. One of the things about One Night in Miami is this idea of how much you're willing to serve the cause of the social and political liberation of black people. And this idea of service, I think, I, well, for me personally, I see it come across a lot in your CV. You sit on, you're a board member of a lot of creative organisations or a founding member that give opportunities back to people who are underrepresented in theatre, whether that's people of colour, whether that's people who are homeless, whether that's people who are disabled, like with Act of Change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this whole... Um, principle of making that opportunity and bringing someone into. So I wanted to ask you, is that something that you feel is a core principle of your approach as an artistic leader? I don't know where that's coming from. That's Connor Glean uh, playing Cassius Clay shouting something. Um, <laughs> he's just in character all the time. Everyone's shouting at things. Um, yeah, absolutely, it's a principle. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that great art should be accessible to everyone. I think it kind of... So my granddad uh, passed away a couple of years ago, uh, but a white working-class dude from Canning Town in East London, uh, left school at the age of 14 or something like that, and had this fascination with opera, ballet, classical music, and I was just like... Where does that come from? He painted, he did sketching, he did watercolour. Um, and I think it's understanding what art gives an individual beyond just the pure entertainment. The kind of expression and the release and the voice and the reflection are essential. Um, uh, Juno Diaz has got a brilliant quote where he says, you know how monsters don't have reflections in the mirror? Uh, well, I realised as a kid that I wasn't being reflected uh, and therefore I didn't exist. So I decided when I was older, I was going to make a couple of mirrors so kids like me would grow up, see themselves reflected and not feel so monstrous for it. 
And I kind of feel like that's one of the goosebumps. Uh, that's what I want to try and do. Uh, I want people to know they exist, they are seen, uh, they are important, and they have a voice, ultimately. And it doesn't matter where you come from, what skin you're born into, what you want to do with your genitalia. Like, none of these things matter. What matters is what can you contribute um, and what do you have to say. Mm-hmm. So I wonder then, you know, you talked in previous interviews about wanting to, one of the next steps of being an artistic leader is running a building. How, you know, this idea of space is a place to grow. Right? How does that, how is that still on the cards and how, you know, will that approach that you have, yeah. will that, you know, solidify into that building? The way it's run, because we're seeing it with lots of the way artists, other artistic directors of colour yep. are changing these institutions. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, it's, it's a little trickier to do because we, because HC don't have a building and are um, only ever in, a, in any town for three days, so it's quite hard to kind of put down roots and effect yeah. change. But if we can build that ethos into the company, that would be wonderful. I, yeah, I get excited when I come into the, the old bit and I see uh, just simple things like a crate of colouring pens and crayons and things to colour it for children. Uh, when I was at the Royal Exchange, I said, why don't we just get a toy box? Let's just have a toy box and a rug. <laughs> like, let's make it a communal hub. What is the theatre when it's not presenting theatre? It's mm. just a big empty building. Um, even, you know, a, a, a production isn't a production until the audience walk in. A theatre isn't alive until people are in it doing things, living, talking, making discoveries and decisions. So, yeah, ultimately, I kind of, you know, kick all the walls off of all the buildings and just say come in be with us let's yeah. talk let's make and I think ultimately again that comes back to, to Joan Littlewood there's a, a slightly apocryphal tale about some some young scamps outside who used to when the, the fancy West End cars would come to see a taste of honey or whatever they were seeing mm-hmm. and these lads outside would say uh, all right governor uh, give us two bob and your car won't get keyed we'll make sure of it <laughs> meaning we won't key your car yeah um, <laughs> And, and Joan came out and she said to these kids, what are you doing? What do you want to do? And they ended up coming into the theatre and eventually making a piece of work. Um, and that's Joan. And I think that's the ability of theatrical institutions to reach out, to understand we're nothing without the community we sit amongst. I mean, what can one do but agree with Matthew Zia there for that communal approach to how theatre should work? And who better to be inspired by than trailblazing Joan Littlewood? Matthew had to head off pretty soon after that to give notes to the cast for yesterday's performance, but we did have time to talk about Amsterdam, his first production as the new artistic director of the Actors Touring Company. Let's just end on what you're doing next, so people can follow you on to your next project. Yeah. Cool. So I'm running this company called ATC, uh, Actors Touring Company, which I think uh, under my Tenureship will kind of be a home for the other, or a, a megaphone stuck in front of the voice of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever the other is, I don't believe in the other, but I think the world keeps telling us we are other, mm-hmm. um, so I want to know what that is. Uh, so the piece that we're going to do is called Amsterdam, it's by an Israeli writer, that's contentious from the get-go, apparently, I don't think it is, but uh, people are upset about that. Uh, she's brilliant, and uh, she was living in Amsterdam for nine years, she married uh, a Dutch guy, she was pregnant, and then suddenly she went, I don't think I can be here. I don't feel safe. I don't want to be the foreign mother stood at the school gates with the funny voice and the funny accent. I don't like the way people look at me in the shop. People think I'm Jewish. People think I'm Islamic. People think I'm, what do people think? Let me go home. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of about, yeah, a growing intolerance in Europe 
which is where we currently are, but it maps that onto 1944. So she's sat in her trendy canal side apartment and an unpaid gas bill, of course, gas being a, a huge mm-hmm. weighted word with regard to that part of Europe in that period. Uh, an unpaid gas bill was poked under her door from 1944 with an astronomical figure attached to it, and she then kind of spirals into wanting to understand who was in this house, what were they doing, uh, and because she can't know a truth, kind of invents a story to okay. keep her paranoia at bay. Very intriguing. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, def- it's like, it's the most abstracted European uh, piece of work I think I've done in terms of its form. Like, there's no characters. There's okay. conversation around characters. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm really looking forward to when it comes out, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. So that's that. Our whistle-stop conversation with Matthew Zia is over. But that doesn't mean that you still can't catch One Night in Miami, where it'll be showing in Bristol until Saturday the 29th of June, and then from there in Manchester at home from Tuesday the 2nd to Friday the 5th of July. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter, Instagram, at Words of Colour, and Facebook, at Words of Colour Productions. We'll catch you next month. <laughs>